Leslie Smith has been the curator of Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire since 2000. She is a medical historian and has 38 academic publications. Leslie has also appeared in over 120 television programmes. She is well known for her highly entertaining and informative costumed portrayals of a variety of historical characters which she gives both at the castle and across the UK. I've had the privilege of seeing Leslie's portrayals of Mary Queen of Scots, that was at Tutbury Castle as part of my 2019 Executed Queen's Tour, and in January 2020 I was at Peterborough Cathedral for her first performance of Catherine of Aragon as part of the festival held at the cathedral each year to commemorate Catherine of Aragon around the time of her death. I think what Leslie does is completely unique. Her portrayal of women in history dressed as they would have been, is not reenactment. Rather, she brings these women to life through her monologues and it's as if they are stood there talking to you. Now, Leslie has kindly agreed to join me today and answer some of my questions about her characters, how she develops them and how she prepares for them. I am fascinated I have to say by how you do it because I don't I don't know of anyone else who does it the way you do it you've got reenactors everywhere and people who tell the history but you combine the two and I've I've had the privilege of seeing you twice so far and I'll see you again as another character next year when you're on tour with us as Elizabeth I, but Mary Queen of Scots. And of course, I saw you at Peterborough Cathedral as Catherine of Aragon. Mm-hmm. And it's like you become that person and you it's like you're listening to them. And it's amazing. So how did you, like, did you always intend to do that? Like, how did you get that idea? What was the spark or... Yes. And, and in fact, it was kind of, I've got to, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I took the castle over at the end of 1999. So actually, this is 22 years this year that I've had the castle. And uh, my home before was open to the public occasionally. So I got the bug about having people come around. And I said, well, look, we'll get the castle and we'll grab its history and make people understand it better because a lot of people didn't know anything about it at all and it wasn't necessarily open very often so we'll, we'll make it a very different creature and of course so we got open and um you know we're not in a high tourist footfall area like not in york or london or somewhere like that so we had to work quite hard it and i thought yeah and we also haven't got much of a roof which is no. kind of really we've got a big half moon of wonderful ruins and we have got a great hall which is gorgeous and a marquee for weddings that sort of thing but nevertheless at the time we were very restricted about what we could do so I said well look Mary Queen of Scots was a prisoner here I studied Tudor history um I suppose I'd better give talks about Mary Queen of Scots so I was lucky enough to get a lady locally in Utox to the racecourse town which is about six miles away to make me had a very good reputation actually to make me and a Mary Queen Scots gown. And it was absolutely jaw-dropping because I'm very, very lucky to have just happen to have landed on the most marvellous woman. So black velvet and, and, and thistles and this sort of thing sewn into it, embroidery, beautiful thing. So I started off by just talking next to a model wearing it. 
you know, this is how my Queen Scots was at the castle, and so on. And, and people quite liked it. And then I started wearing the gown and talking about her. Then the white face came along next, and that was a big change. Because we went, ah, that woman looks very strange. We must bring our friends to see her. I mean, that's kind of, that's English humour, isn't it? But what I did feel very strongly was a very passionate attachment to the characters. And the way I did that, passion is a strange word, really meant to be objective historians, you know. What I mean by that is I got terribly embroiled with the personalities that I would play and read their personal letters, read interpretations of them, a lot of primary sources. Mm. I'm indebted to British history online, state papers and domestic papers. So you read and read and read and you just kind of start building this character, this personality. So I started to play her. And when the tragedy of the Mary story, as a woman myself, and I'm a woman's historian, I'm a specialist in medicine, my MPhil is in, in medicine in the mid-16th century, you can't help but feel a tremendous sense of, I don't know, the dignity of this woman and then the indignity of her imprisonment and death that I wanted to get people to get this sense of real people, you see. Philip. Mm. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I drive towards. And I say to people, I don't study the dead, I study the living. They're dead at the moment. But they definitely lived. And if you're not careful, they're just blank figures in canvases. And so I started to do this, but it took years. I mean, years and years of study for just Mary to come. Because before I go on and speak, I always sit quietly together and say to whatever character I'm playing, let me be fit for you. Mm. I always say, let me be fit for you. And the reason I'm saying that is because it's real person. Just because nobody's alive now that remembers them personally doesn't mean they can't be treated very well. So I started with Marion and I started finding that audiences were crying. That wasn't because I was so rubbish uh, and they wanted to leave. I mean, that was always a risk. But people were crying when we got to the death scene. And I, I tried to be as responsible as I could be about the facts. Mm. You know what? It's very easy to kind of... I mean over dramatize or tart things up a bit and, and that is not a service to the history or the person listening you don't need to my experience is you don't need to make it up the real thing's fabulous so I started off being Mary and I started to go around the country and up to Scotland and then more and more interest built and all the time I was doing it I never stopped researching an individual so what I mean is, if I was on the plane, I'd be looking at new papers that might have come out in academic works, PhDs or something, to try to be sure that I was still giving. And sometimes I did have to change speeches, you know, yeah. because new work came in that found new evidence. So you've got to kind of be a bit on the ball if you can. Uh, and another reason of, of doing that is it's a bit like wearing two pairs of knickers. You know, if one drops off, you've got another pair. And that's very relevant because very often in the audience, I have some very high flying historians often professors of history, very senior people. Sometimes they <laughs> say hilarious things. I had one professor say to me, actually, he's a professor of dentistry. And he said, you know, I was dreading this. My wife made me come. But I really enjoyed it. And I wasn't sure if I was pleased with that or not. <laughs> what is that? Is that good? I think it's good. So you get that kind of thing. And then I started getting booked at academic uh, conferences and this kind of thing. But, yeah, it was Mary to start with. And this idea of building this personality and it's quite difficult because I do let go of myself. Mm. I mean, completely. Or had one eerie thing for those who like eerie things happen with Mary that changed me as well. Uh, in the first couple of years of being here, I had um, 
uh, one of my staff say, there's a man who'd like to talk to you, please. And this man in a pinstripe suit who looked for all the world like a civil servant, really, a senior civil servant, well-spoken man. And he just said, I've got something to tell you that I do have to tell you. So I said, go ahead. And he said, well, I came to see you. And then the week after I had a dream that I was standing in Tuckley Castle looking down uh, in the South Range. If you look it up online, you'll see. And there's a wonderful what has been a barrel roofed, two barrel roofed rooms. And Mary was definitely prisoner in that building. Now, at this point, we didn't know that, by the way. By the way, that didn't come out till we did a massive dig with the British Museum some years later. It was not known she was there. And he said she was sitting on a wooden chair, a carved wooden chair. And I thought it was you, he said. And as I came down the steps towards her, she turned and looked at me. And it was her gown, but not your face. And she said to me, tell her she's good. She's very good. But she doesn't know how much I suffered. Wow. And that really quite knocked me. I mean, needless to say, if it was true vision, that was some flattering. But she was saying she doesn't know how much I suffered. And then after that, I started much more intensely looking into the suffering, much more intensely looking into the, the panic attacks that she had. Um, and they, they can't be described any other way, running barefoot in the snow here at the castle uh, and screaming, trying to bring herself out of this terrible sensation, which, of course, those of us who suffered panic attacks feel immense sense of sympathy. In fact, most people who have them can't even talk about them or hear the name. So we know she suffered in that way, too. And then... I thought, you know what, public are very kind. They're coming in large numbers and I'm seeing others. And they're having a cream tea and meeting Mary Queen of Scots. That went in the Times and the Daily Telegraph. That's because I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Have a cream tea and meet in the first. So this kind of stuff was working. And, um, and then, I mean, I had to drive people in here and then get the serious history opening the Great Hall, beautiful Tudor furniture, all that kind of thing, which has happened. So then I was Elizabeth. Uh, and that gown takes some wearing. That's four stone three. Wow. Uh, I had another one that was a bit lighter at the beginning, but now this is, but people just cry out because I have the white face. I've got, you know, I've got three ruffs on the whole thing and it is spectacular. And I do want to say at this point, a very grateful wave to my tremendous team of talented people. Girl from the RSC made for me, a girl from the v and a consultancy work there. And I've even got a silk mistress and I've even got a, a, a proper a, a girl who does beading and pearling and lectures in it. So I've got an outstanding group of people. My shoes are handmade. My wigs are handmade for me. And that sensational kind of look of it, and the weight of it makes you walk differently. Mm. And it gives mm. impact. So uh, Elizabeth came next and people loved Elizabeth. Uh, and then uh, others came along eventually. For example, I played 12 different people. I'll just list them off, but without going to too much detail, if you're not too bored. Uh, oh, I want as, to know how many, actually, you've got. Uh, it's now. 12. Yes, it's 12 characters and two additional talks uh, that I've done as well. Um, so we've got um, Boudicca, uh, Catherine Swinford, who was John of Gaunt's mistress and eventually wife and mother of the Beaufort Bastards, and every single royal king or queen in this nation uh, and Scotland as well, ever since has been direct descendants of one couple. Catherine Swinford and John Gaunt. And so I play her because she's so influential in fabulous red silk with a, one of those, you know, like beam eye headdresses, you know, fantastic looking thing in gold. Um, then Catherine of Aragon, and that gown's four and a half stone. That one's even heavier. 
And that's extraordinary thing. Oh, yeah, I just want to talk about that a minute because you actually saw me do that one. And where do they come from? People sometimes ask me these characters and and they're very distinctly different. Um, But I hope, uh, but it was because Peterborough Cathedral knew my other work and said to me, would you come for our great festival, this very important festival of Catherine of Aragon because of the years? And uh, I said, I don't really think I want to take on another character. I mean, they take a long time, you know, even if it's a Tudor who I know quite a lot about, I'm I'm still going to be tricky. Um, So they said, well, the Spanish ambassador will be there. So I went, right, I'm definitely doing it. Uh, I was quite good because it was like Mrs. Bouquet was coming through me, channeling. Um, But I arose, as you remember, probably from the tomb. I arose from her tomb and there was holy smoke about. Uh, and I had someone singing beautiful Tudor music, live singing to go with it. And it was poignant. And I mean, it was poignant for me too. And people don't seem to understand that I struggle emotionally at times when I see people's reaction. Um, and uh, Catherine Swinford, I went to a little church. I mean, she's from the 1360s and 80s, 90s. And I went to a little church where she actually worships in Lincolnshire. And when I walked in under a blossom tree, and stood at the altar in my red silk gown, and I said, I am come home. And, and then people started crying. So then I start, I mean, you know, you've got to kind of control yourself all the time. And it sounds so wet, all this, but it's not, because it can take me. It took me five years to get Boudicca. I mean, five yeah. years of study on the, oh, yeah, that was no fun. And I was warned off about that uh, someone at the British Museum very senior bloke said you do the Tudors quite well I understand oh, damned with faint praise uh, but uh, don't touch Boudicca there's simply not enough evidence good afternoon so you can imagine what I thought about that I mean <laughs> that challenge <laughs> accepted yeah I'm having it I'm having it um, and that you see the wool to make this incredible cloak that I wear was hand woven by a woman on a Romano British frame and it was stained with madder and it was stained with um, you know, the woad and everything. So you can't, and even jewellery was handmade for her from evidence of Celtic jewellery. So I, I depend on these things. You know, I do depend on these because of the impact. I mean, I'm not clever enough to appear in a black polar neck and black trousers like a really clever actor and suspend belief. I need these trappings, really. Um, so they, so in other words, Peterborough got me to do it and I said no, and then I went, yeah, why? Well, and glad I did because people love the sight of her and hearing the story about her. Um, and there's uh, Nell Gwynn. Uh, there's the Witch of Mac. No, Nell Gwynn's a riot, by the way. Yeah. Nell Gwynn. I was a bit, I'm not sure. Public picked that. Public kept saying, oh, be Nell Gwynn. We'd love to see Nell Gwynn. And you'll know with your, with your passion for history too, and those people listening to this, that oral tradition does have its place. I mean, it's a worry because it could be made up of some load of what have you. But in fact, uh, I knew there was a huge affection for her without people knowing why. So I should have known better than to sneer about playing her. Not because I thought it was too good for it. I just thought there were other people to play. And of course there are, until I found her. And when I found her, I sat in my office and looked down and I said to her, I'm sorry. I had no idea you were so wonderful and generous and kind and and decent and honourable at a very difficult time. So, um, and in that case, you see, we found uh, a document that Charles II signed off for one of her gowns, and we produced that. Wow. The corsetry, oh yeah, the corsetry I wear, there's 18 metres of steel in it, in the corset alone, 
Um, and, and people say, oh, would you have bone? Well, we had a bit of bone, yeah. But people also wore steel. The Romans had steel and they wore wood as well. And I'm very well advised, you know, about that. There she is in a blaze of red wig. And she's the one that when people have seen everything, they very largely like the best. You know, they do. Yeah. Anne Boleyn was very difficult to play because she's so extraordinary, a giantess amongst women. And her influence in society and the Reformation. Some people go, oh, I don't agree. I don't think she was catalyst. Some think she was. And I have to be very careful that I don't make it fit what I want it to be. That is a tremendous responsibility for a historian. Because if you're not careful, you're so biased yeah. that you know, it loses its weight. I mean, you know, because I do some unique research, particularly about health. And for things like Catherine of Aragon, I actually went into the Spanish papers as well as the English papers with assistance. So I got both sides of the story. And they're the kind of things that give you more strength. Anne Boleyn was sharp and shrewish and difficult at times, but she was under the most enormous pressure as well. And I found terrific depth of experience with her. Now, this is going to be very odd for your listeners. They'll probably go, right, I've enough of this woman now. Um, I quite often feel that these people, when I'm speaking, are standing near me, looking at me. And I get that feeling uh, because it helps me as a tool, you know, when I'm working. And I feel they're there nodding, encouraging me. But Anne Boleyn, without exception, all these years later, I mean, I don't know how long I've been playing her now, about 12 years, maybe more. In all these years, she always is the other side of the room and she has her back to me. I can't make a turn around. Mm. That's ridiculous, but I can't make a turn around. But she's coming a bit closer. Now, one day she might, uh, but I don't force it. I let my own mind deal with this. And I suspect this back turned business is, is she was terribly badly stung, wasn't she? And the other horror about it is these little things like her dog, Porky, thrown out of a window and smashed on the ground below, bleeding and twitching with the courtiers walking past it without helping them and looking up and, yeah, you're next. And it's those kind of mental sort of torture, if you like, and the, the fear building in someone is something that I try to put over. And people say, when well, you cry, or oh, you're obviously an actress. And I say, no, I'm not. I'm just crying. I'm crying because I can't really deal with what I'm saying. Although I'm very practiced, that doesn't mean it's manipulative. I mean, it. sometimes I'm worse than others. You know, sometimes I'm really knocked about by it. But I always manage to get through. And strangely, all these characters kind of stay in my head. You know, they stay there. I don't know where they are. I'll come to that in a moment. So we've got Elizabeth Mogan, I said all that. Nell Gwynn, Witch of Manning Tree. You've not seen that, have you? No, I haven't. And in fact, most people haven't. I only play it once a year, oh. Halloween week. Yeah, my staff can live without it, one of whom is here with me. Because uh, doors bang, lights go on, they claim, they reckon it causes all sorts. Because I play a real witch, not a mistaken cosmetic saleswoman, mm. which is a bit of the theory. Oh, witches were not witches. They were lovely women who made hand cream. Actually, 20% were men, quite a lot were middle class, and a lot of them were extremely wicked and were engaged in digging up bodies, taking bits of nose and knuckles and fingers, because those are used particularly in spells. 
And it doesn't matter that they didn't work, these spells, although some of them did in the psychological sense. What matters is malice aforethought. Hmm. They thought they would work. They wanted them to work and they were doing these things. So, yeah, that's pretty horrific. So I'm also beaten up in that one, black eyes. I've got rope around the throat uh, and I'm in a shift identical, but was one, a witchy shift that was found in Germany. And so the research into that was a bit hair on end. Um, I also play uh, George Eliot. That's a bit of a jump, isn't it? Yeah. George Eliot is, well, she was a, a kicking, the, kicking the traces over. She was an extraordinary woman, uh, transformed people's views about women in society in the Victorian period. Exquisite writer, writes wonderful things and has a great passion for the poor, for Jewish people. I went to Jerusalem. There's only a road named after her. George yeah. Eliot Way, yeah, in Jerusalem, what's going on? Um, and that's because she was very keen that people should not be pushed to the fringe of society. She was an extraordinary woman, and um, I've been lucky enough to be for the bicentenary year to appear for the fellowship. So there's another example of where I was asked to do it. I actually turned down the Jane Austen Society. I chose not to play Jane Austen, but George Eliot was someone else. She was also highly promiscuous. Don't ask her to come stay in your house. She'll sleep with your husband. Um, and there were lots of other things about her. But what she was was a complex and fascinating character. So she was also the ugliest woman in Britain by reputation. So thank you for asking me to do it. And uh, <laughs> I wear a white crinoline with uh, blue edging on that. And that's very pertinent because there's only one photograph of her that we know of. There's another one that looks like it might be her, actually, when she was about 17, a very early one. But um, I wear that because that's an actual direct link with her, you know, in terms of, of clothes and things. So uh, that's been a privilege playing her. Um, I play also Margaret Thatcher. And that's why I play George Eliot, because Margaret Thatcher is the opposite, pole opposite. And playing Margaret has its own challenges. Hilariously, I was asked to play that at a North Knotts mining village and lived and lived. <laughs> I said, where's he going to be? On the rifle range. And they went, no, we want to find out about a duck. So I trudged up there and got the Glasgow Empire welcome, did it. And at the end, a woman said to me, I'd just like to say I hated you when you were alive, but I respect you now, duck. And I thought, well, that a remarkable, yeah. What I mean, fantastic. But that George Eliot, very up, because George Eliot was really a left-wing socialist before socialism as we know it. So those two are a balance. What I've dropped now amongst my 12 characters is Mistress Shakespeare. And the reason I dropped her was she's even more of a vaporous figure, if that's possible in many ways, than Boudicca. I mean, in some respects. And, you know, we've got, we've even got her baptism name. Was it, was it Anne or was it Annis? Because it changes. Ever so interesting. So, I mean, Shakespeare's pretty vaporous as well, but he mm. more so. And so it was an opportunity for me, however, to talk about middle class life. You see, uh, I mean, Nell Gwynn was very much from the gutter and then rose through the ranks. But this was someone who sat very nicely in the middle there. So, yeah, and I, I decided to drop her because I advertised as Anne Hathaway. I sold it in. But, you know, the bite wasn't there. I didn't have the people wanted it and I was happy to do it. But, you know, it just felt too shallow. Does that make sense? Mm. that makes sense it just felt I just wasn't getting a big enough grip on it mm. um, and 
Oh, one other person I play as well, who is Peggy Knight. Peggy Knight was one of Churchill's SOE. She's a 1940s person. So these relatively modern ones uh, are, are kind of weird. But at the same time, they're fascinating to play because I actually get to speak to people who knew these people, you know, like, yeah, like Margaret Thatcher. I'm, a lot of people know her. I don't pay for political purposes, you know. I, I play her because she's a woman who was extraordinary for her time, like all over this Marmite character. So that, yeah, that's amazing. And Peggy Knight, I had the SOE people come to see me, archive experts, all sorts of fascinating things. For that costume, I got a 1940s Vogue model pattern, gave it to a tailor, managed to get some English tweed and had a 1940s suit made up. And yes, there's a very big investment on these gowns, mm. but it's worth it because when I come out and I'm wearing the whole thing, it really helps me with portraying it but it also makes people amazed you know they were amazed by most things oh when I played Peggy I must tell you this a couple of years ago I was at um it was at one of my first performances and I was at Bomber Command area you know playing there to a large group and as I went out there was two old boys sitting on a table on the way out and I heard one say to the other there's about 120 in the audience I'm and I fell about as I went past he went she's remarkable that woman for her age yeah, I would be 99, mate. Yeah, I'd be remarkable as I was clipping along in my coupon busters. And the great challenge for me and anybody who does this, I mean, yes, there are in actors. Some of them have a, degrees, a degree in uh, history. It's not necessarily very common because we have a lot of folks here. But, you know, amateur means lover of. You can have a great passion for things. Um, but yes, what I do is unusual. I think I am the only one I'm told I am. But uh, I'm published for the Royal College of Gynaecology with my work on uh, sexuality and fertility in the 16th century. And that gives me a bit of clout, you see. So that that helps. And because of that reason, I've also appeared and spoken abroad and at a lot of conferences to do with medicine, which is which is great because, you know, it's my subject area. And all the time it's a privilege, you know. I mean, people who listen to me now, will know that when you find yourself reading for the first time something like Xiaopei's description, who was the imperial ambassador, on the 19th of May, 1536, as Anne made her way to her death, he writes word for word what he sees. Wow. And you gasp. Yeah, you gasp. Because suddenly there she is walking in front of you and there she is real. So my interpretation has to stay as tight as I can get it. And as I get older, I'm having to drop things. You know, I'm thinking about dropping more things. I mean, not everybody, but, you know, some of the characters. Um, when I'm Boudicca, it doesn't matter because it's got a blue face. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter about that. But you're a bit conscious. And um, one woman said to me, or one young woman said, couldn't you play Catherine Howard? I went, listen, she was executed when she was a teenager. I mean, we're pushing it here. I mean, there's a limit to this relationship. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, they're brilliant, aren't they? But uh, I have a sort of different approach, so... There we are. So sorry, that was rather a ramble for people listening to this, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. It's fascinating. So, the, I mean, the costume is obviously a huge part for yes. uh, people watching, but it helped, did it help you, it sounds like it does, get into that character as well? Being it does. Because, yes, because we get right the way down to the underwear and the right fabrics and the right shoes and these things. So when I'm in it, and what underwear there was, uh, when I'm in it, I'm feeling what she would have felt because things have moved on and interpretation of pain and sensation might be slightly different, but I've still got skin and they yes. have skin. Um, and, you know, the description of childbirth 
uh, eating green apples, they describe it as, is the same. So there are definite similarities. And the very heavy costumes do make me walk differently, and they're meant to. They are designed to do that uh, so that there's no doubt that I am not a sort of free-spirited shepherdess picking a lover from a field. You know, I am a queen and I look like one. And because, I mean, children, children, you know, they, they pin it for you. Um, they will say to me as Elizabeth, you're so beautiful. And do you know what I'm not? It's beautiful. But they understand the power of what they're seeing. They understand about power. And because of that, they realise it's important to stay well in that. <laughs> I had a local kid who used to come every Sunday. It was about six, six till eight. For two years, this kid came or more. Every Sunday, um, and sometimes we'd say, we're on holiday next week. And I was being very Queen Scots with the white face and the outfit on. And she, I'd say, all right, then I'll see you when you come back from holiday. Anyway, one week, I suddenly thought, why is this kid keep coming out here with a father? And I said, do you know who I am? And she said, yes, you're the witch. Oh, great. Uh, well, <laughs> she was so frightened of me that she made her dad from the village bring her up every Sunday to stay well in. I mean, her father looked at me and went, sorry, mouth, sorry. <laughs> I had no idea this child thought, blimey, she's a bit frightening. I better be a bit careful. Uh, and what you're really, oh, that description describes in some ways what the masses might have felt about the impact of seeing someone you know, mm. like that. It's so very different, you see, particularly when sumptuary laws were firmly in place as well. So, so what else you got to ask me? I'm so sorry. I'm, well, it's I'm interesting. A- I'm just thinking about that because obviously we like the Tudors especially, we know were very good at, had an eye on the theatre of what they were up to. But actually, you know, in, in the age obviously before even a photograph or, you know, a, a good sketch, I think, they would be seen from afar, I suppose, and the 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 they have to be big and colourful, and you know, if you think about the roofs and the, everything, is sort of designed to make them a bigger person, yes, bigger larger entity. than life. Mm. Yeah, almost mm. sort of goddessy. Well, it was more involved than that, even with Elizabeth. I I appeared at Burley House last week, and I'm appearing uh, next year for the whole family. So we've got all these sisters coming in from all over the Europe. Some say Sissel, some say Sissel, but they're all coming over and it would be a privilege to be there. But uh, Elizabeth, with her 400 in her retinue on her summer progress, and she, of course, was not the only one who did it. Lots of medieval kings did it. It's a way of suppressing uppity earls. But when she arrived in Stamford, she had with her two camels with jewelled collars. And, of course, that's absolutely arresting. And the reason she did that was because she realised crusaders were by tradition set off from there and she was acknowledging local history that people knew and were proud of. But as well as that, she knew it again, it's the theatre. But I mean, Edward III, who was, who was in fact father of John of Gaunt and the Black Prince and all these people, he and his wife were busy. Uh, there was a lot of children in that family. I mean, when they had these massive sort of dances and feasts, on one occasion, he wore a swan on his head, a stuffed swan with the wings open. People, and like eagle head, I mean, just incredible things they wore. And somebody at the court said, thank God for King Edward III and his wife, Philippa, for they did invent clothes. So we think of the Tudors as spectacular, and they were with the Ruffins, but this lot, I mean, there's some spectacular clothes with them. Ermine, when you flick your feet, you know, underneath your gown, 
men wearing pink when they're boys and girls wearing pale blue because pink is watered down red and it's not the other way around. And, you know, you just find out loads of great stuff, really. Yeah, loads of great stuff. There's so many things for us to find out. And we'll go, no, like toothbrushes, toothpaste. What's it made of? How do we cope with periods? What did we do to have a boy? Was it different? Yes, it was different. It didn't work, but we thought it would. And that's the kind of thing we mean, you say. So as well as the characters, I also give a talk on sex of the Tudors. I've got one coming up next time at Abbey Theatre in Nuneaton. And um, that just goes through lots of things I talk about, from, from condoms to childbirth and that sort of thing. Um, but the proper childbirth talk is another talk, which is giving birth to the Tudors. So I do those two as well. I made four appearances as Hester Thrale once, who was Dr. Johnson's mistress, especially for the Hester Thrale people and Dr. Johnson's society. Uh, but, you know, with a huge white wig, like a pantomime dame, really, with this pale green gown. She was a formidable intellectual. She learned Hebrew one summer. Like you do. Way to fill an evening, isn't it? And she was absolutely brilliant. Um, but in saying that, nobody's heard of it. There's no point in me promoting that. You know, the, uh, I mean, I'm... If I want to, if I want to make sure I stay in business and I'm able to produce funding, but also not everything is done for money. Definitely some things are definitely done. I do charity work anyway, but also because I'm just really keen that everybody should find a bit of history that makes them go, oh, mm. that's marvellous, you know, that's marvellous. But the Elizabethans were very clever about staging. Look at the field of cloth of gold. That's mm. yeah, great. Mm. Uh, it's interesting as well, though. If I think if you you're taking the characters that people know and familiar with, and you know you can get a lot of people to come and listen about, and then you're introducing history that they don't know in the period they love, and I would hope because I try and do this with some of my stuff that that then pricks their interest to go and look at the periods they think aren't interesting or the the areas of history they think aren't as interesting because it opens up the mind to think, okay, there's stuff everywhere to find out. And that is, you know, it is interesting. Like the whole, we won't get onto it now, but the whole pink and blue thing, yeah. you know, the, there's women at the moment that, who won't dress their baby girls in pink because they think it's, <laughs> it, it's sort of giving into some kind of stereotype. And then you find out that it's just, Connotations that have come about in our time that were totally different in another time. It's incredible. But what I wanted to ask you, because each of your monologues, how long do they last? They're long, aren't they, that you do? Yeah, I, um, it depends on the audience because I'm not scripted. Uh, I should well, say that's that what I wanted I... to ask. Yeah, go on. Yeah, well, what happens it? is uh, I, I write sort of a big, long thing, you know, about 30 pages long. Uh, and it's got stepping stones in it. And those stepping stones are the hard history that you must do. You've got to do kind of birth year. You've got to do, you know, marriage and all that sort of thing. So a lot of those are date orientated, but not, or, or, or individuals that come into the picture of the person I'm playing. So they're there. And then I write loads, loads of research and I, I footnote it nearly always. I make a mistake if I don't footnote it. Because if people say to me, where'd you get that from? And I'll say, fantastic, let me go and get my note. And then I can, you see, you've got to kind of justify. I can't make it up because you fancy it. No. So, so that's what I do. Um, and you're very responsible the way you run your business to make sure things are responsible, you know, and, and exciting. So I, um, 
That's what I do. And then I start to cook my people, my girls. It's a bit like being on a stove and always slow. I think it takes six months for I'm anything like seeing, you know, I'm all right. I'm all right. It'll do. But it gets much, much better. And then gradually you get more and more personality emerging and some people self-pitying, some are really aggressive and these things come out. So after a while, I suppose it becomes a script. But like the other day when I was at Burley, I spoke, it, it's, they're always about three quarters of an hour to 50 minutes. The first Captain of Aragon I did, I think was an hour and 10 or something. That one you saw, I think, at Peterborough mm. because it was a lot to get in there. It was a terrific life. And so consequently, I'm speaking, but I'm wedging in things that are directly pertinent uh, to the group that are listening. If I have midwives, for example, uh, you know, I'll talk, I'll include some of my midwifery bits in there. I had, uh, unfortunately, no, not unfortunately, but fortunately, because they were absolutely wonderful. I had the, um, uh, something, it's called something like the British Society of Embalmers in. So oh. I came out as <laughs> May Queen Scots and they had a Christmas party with us. And um, I came out as May Queen Scots and said, I'm the only client you'll meet twice. So that was quite funny. We managed to sort that one out. So you've got to kind of be a bit on the edge. And if you feel people are getting too weighed down, you have to kind of lift it a little bit. And so that's what I do. I write down. And, and once when I was in Stafford, I noticed there was a chap at the front who was making copious notes. And I quite often talk to people who do that, not because they're necessarily pinching what I'm writing. I mean, I have had that actually uh, you know when that my my research is you know you've got to expect a bit of that but I said to this chat oh, really interesting sir what we're doing and he said oh I'm a psychiatrist he said I'm retired now but I've been making notes about you and he said I've never seen anybody retain information and bring it out again the way you do and he said it's a bit like watching someone gathering up flocks of sheep you gather them up in a pen and then you open the door and they come out at whatever pace you want it to come out. He said, that was so interesting. And then he wandered off. I didn't know if I was pleased with that one. <laughs> I didn't know if I was pleased with that I think that was a compliment. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't think it was meant to be a compliment. I think it was meant to be just a hard fact. You know, I think it just it is. And I definitely go somewhere else because the, I also had 30 psychologists in one night and they said, I'm in an altered state of consciousness, in their opinion, when I'm doing these things. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm a medium or anything remotely like that. It's just perhaps intense concentration. But I do wander off um, and, and get, and if I really have a wander off, then it gets even more interesting. Um, and I know that. So I think I'm rooting round in my filing cabinet of facts and pulling out things. And the audiences teach. Oh, yeah, it does. Oh, yeah. yeah. Audiences tell me things all the time. I mean, they come up to me and say, oh, by the way, I... I'm somewhere, I'm, you know, some state at home, we've got this if you'd like to see it, which is what I had at Hever when I went to go and see the beautiful book of hours that you know. And you just never stop recognising what a privilege it is to be part of history, to share that history, and never, uh, you know, never stop trying to share that people get a real fabulous feeling about what they see emotional drive or if people say to me you know I used to hate history so I can't really get that said but I'm really glad I came and I'm going to start reading a book and you need an army of kind of little books that to get people started so it's not overwhelming and then you get them going I don't mean that in a patronizing way uh, I just mean literally people just to give a good snapshot of the period and then they can build up to it mm. so yeah and, and over the years a lot of people have written to me said they'd like to do degrees or a-levels and I've been fortunate enough to work with some of them on the journey so 
you know, that's great. I mean, that's a focus of flowers. That is, yeah, it is. It is. We've had about 11 or 12 of those, maybe a few more. Fabulous. So who, because you, you, you play, obviously, the, the, the reason you're playing them is because they're, they're hard-hitting women. <laughs> um, I love the fact they're all complex as well, because I just think everyone is complex. And I, 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 I find myself... Anytime someone says so and so was she was beautiful and she was clever and it's like no that means you like her that doesn't mean she was necessarily all those <laughs> things you know because we're, we're all right? we're all way more complex than that um, but who do you find then well let's do well, I'll, I'll ask both questions and you can you can answer as as you wish is there someone who's the most difficult to play and equally is there someone who's your favourite to to play. Emotionally, Anne Boleyn is really difficult. In terms of hard facts, George Eliot, because it's oh, so much going on. But in saying that, it's not my period, and I find it hard work, I think. I think I find George Eliot hard work. So let's go back and say, emotionally, it's very difficult. I don't hate playing it. It's very difficult for me to play Anne Boleyn. But when we get to, I mean, Elizabeth is so wonderful, and Mary. And then another bishop of me feels... They've both got to be magnificent, those girls, you know. But Nell is lovely to play, although she's not quite my period, you know. Mm. But then again, there's this broad spectrum and you move your way along the canvas and see what happened next and what happened next. And as you have this journey, you see how these characters kind of could have possibly happened in that landscape. So uh, Nell is lovely. And when I take my costume off, she leaves me alone. Whereas I always feel like Elizabeth is in the back of the car nagging me in Latin. You know, <laughs> and I go to bed, leave me alone. Elizabeth comes very close to me when I'm speaking. But, I mean, I am a 16th century specialist and there's no question, you know, somebody said to me, who's going to meet in the room, you know, the, the cliche, which I quite like, actually, in a way. Mm. Uh, I think it's going to be Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. Although I do fancy Sir Walter Raleigh, which is a bit of a problem because he's been dead 400 years. Um, so there is a temptation to go and, have a nice afternoon with Sir Walter Raleigh because he was a dish when he was young, you know. So, but you see how real they are, how real mm. they are. Mm. He was known as Switter Swatter, by the way, at court, because he had so many women up against trees, they go, Sir Walter, Sir Witter, Sir Watter. And uh, he was known as Switter Swatter, that's true. They're the bits I love. I love those bits. They're great. But that's, again, back, <laughs> right back to what you were saying at the start. It's about they're real people. And it is difficult because they live so long ago that they are stories. In the first and foremost, when you come across these people, they're stories in a wider story, truncated as well by virtue of just trying to tell a story. What always hits me when you read a biography is that you've just managed to read a person's whole entire life. You know, it really hits me that, you, that, that you've in a month or whatever span someone's entire lifetime but they're a story in there and I think you what you do is so powerful like you say when you're doing your things you know when they tasted salt it tasted the same to them as it does to you um and it does it makes you it, it snaps you into some sort of um I want to say reality but that's not quite how I mean but that the, the, they are real um and there was these, you know, as well, because we're talking about queens and or, or people who have like had huge impact. 
we hear the major events in their life. You know, what was the banter like at court, like you said about Sir Walter Raleigh? You know, that kind of stuff, that's their day to day. We hear the, yeah, the big events and the speeches and the, um, that's. That's true. And that's why I like to do medical history, because I know but Elizabeth, Mary the First, and Mary Queen of Scots all had dropsy, you know, under stress. They all suffered with dropsy under stress. They got swelling, swelling of the face, lips, hands. Um, all of us can do that, can also be heart failure, of course. But the reality is they didn't have it. I don't think for that reason. In fact, when Elizabeth was young, she had it. And then she had smallpox in her 20s that nearly killed her. And Mary Sidney fed her with a spoon, who was beautiful, Philip Sidney's sister. And then she ended up wearing a black veil for the rest of her life, this woman. She knew the risk and she was so badly scarred with it. So you get these, don't tell me Elizabeth wasn't struck by the sacrifice this woman had made. But Elizabeth also had a bawdy sense of humour. She took a shoe off and threw it at people. She used to swear at people. She got a vindictive sense of humour that was really funny. Um, but at the same time, if you were on the end of it, it was no fun. Mm. And, you know, this idea of Henry VIII eating chicken legs and chucking them over his shoulder, whereas, in fact, he was absolutely beautiful, fit as a dog and gorgeous when he was young. Uh, and in, throughout his 20s and 30s, so later on and all that happens. You're right, though. We do do the big events and the speeches. It is truncated. But if, if you do something of their medical history, you start to see the person more. Like Elizabeth had two panic attacks. There's no way to describe them. She was carried out of church senseless with fear. You know the impact it can have on people of various illnesses like depression, uh, that kind of thing. And that can give you this melancholic kind of sense sometimes of things coming and how thing, how people reacted. But, of course, faith was a massive impact as well. Uh, the way people perceived heaven, intercession of the saints. I mean, you wouldn't say you were you were an atheist. They'd think you were nuts. I mean, it's got a lot we all about it, loony. Um, so this idea of the recording angel and heaven and hell and all things are very, very real. And so consequently, how they behaved, even if they were doing it on the quiet, they knew the recording angel was watching, which means come the weighing of souls. They'll say, right, do you remember when you, etc." And And that's the kind of thing that people were very conscious of. And so you're aware of a bit of a wariness as you walk through life. Uh, and then others, it's very quick, you know, to say, oh, they must have been mad. Why? Just lets people off the hook. I mean, what you're doing is trying to cross an abyss of time and impose our ideas of everything from race to uh, class and all, which is, of course, really sort of Karl Marx invention in a way. We can still say the middling classes, though. We're trying to leap across this abyss, and you can't. So what you have to do is pick the things you can, like pain, even if your perception of pain might be slightly different, that sort of thing. Uh, but I like to think that people, after a while, well, I'm trying to work towards it. Nothing to do with ego. This is, It's to do with admiration of these people. Is you hope that at a particular moment, people think they're with her. Mm. People think they're like with they her. Sounds like they do. From uh, what people have said to you. Yeah. So sometimes you are lucky enough. And children, as I say, straighten you a bit. But children, they've got these great imaginations. I had a little boy when I was leaving a massive church dressed as Anne Boleyn. I've been Anne Boleyn today to children. 
And as I left this church, these load of 10-year-olds or nine-year-olds, at nine, I think. Anyway, this little boy a few years ago just stopped me and said, excuse me. And he took great personal courage. It was packed. And I stopped and looked back at him. And, and there I was, Amberlynn, going to my death. And he said, are they going to kill you now? Oh. Now, that's hard. Mm. I mean, I heard the adults going, oh. So I went to him and took his hands and said, feel my hands. I'm not a ghost. I can't die again, my love. I can't die again. And, and that's the best I can do because actually I'm staggering towards the changing room. And whilst I wanted these children to feel the reality of it, that emotional was, that was smack in the face because I have a son. Yeah. You have a son. You know, these things uh, do, do strike you. So we do get that. And other kids say, why are you sitting in that red hat? Because uh, I'm sitting in my canopy of state, you know, red silk. Yeah, I suppose it looks like a red hut. Uh, so lots of things are terribly funny. Oh, and one child quite recently said um, to my secretary, has she got out of the grave specially? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it sounds morbid, but I think the child thought they were making such an effort. Thank you. I mean, they said specially. You know. Yeah, it might not look so good, really, now, 500 years down the line. But... <laughs> It's wonderful. Yeah, it's arresting. It's arresting. Yeah. So, do you have to? I presume you do a different type of talk to the adults, to the, the children, or how do you balance that? Yeah, that was tricky this morning. You see, I don't say uh, my Elizabeth will be declared bastard. I mean, I don't go there unless they're kind of sixteen plus. Then I can. I don't want to go back and say I've learned a new word. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> great! Ofsted will be pleased. Um, etc. So you do a bit of that and you just have to kind of put rain back, rain back a bit. But I don't mean boulderize it or kind of, you're censoring, but you're doing it in a sensible way, you know, as best you can. It's not easy, actually. And I can't stand it when people say to me, right, I'd like to give a talk, please, but there's a lot um, on the agenda that day, so we'd like to do half an hour. That's hell. I don't do half an hour. So my talks are three quarters of an hour, Plus questions, which is usually an hour. Sometimes it's a little more. Uh, um, oh, um, George Elliott was an hour and a quarter first time, yeah. And um, because I was so pleased to get this stuff out, you know, God, such a lot of information. And so many people to sleep with, apparently. So, um, yeah, you just have to be quite, kind of very wary with children because it is sensitive. And sometimes I'm very aware that Nell Gwynn, who lost a son when he was nine, uh, James and I think oh I hope there's nobody in the audience and there usually is that have been a loss of a child or a grandchild I had a woman uh, only four weeks ago got up and left and then she came back and sat down and I went to her and said have you lost a child she said I did it was a long time ago I hope you don't mind I'm sorry I went out she didn't cause a scene you know she just quietly went out and so you, but you can't take that out you can't take out the rape of the two little girls by the Romans of Boudicca's two holy princesses. You cannot take that out. So I never do that talk to children unless they're kind of 18 plus. Mm. Uh, because then, oh, I have done the sex and the tutors to a team of young prostitutes who were in special protective care. And they came in and I gave that talk to let them know that history's full of, you know, the kind of experiences they knew about. Mm. Uh, but that had to be done sensitively. I've appeared twice in female... A category A prisons, and that was only the last in the last four years twice. And and these are the most dangerous women. These are murderers, and all sorts of things. And I thought, blimey, <laughs> you know, I was a bit nerve wracked, but I thought, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. 
uh, Elizabeth I, and I also played uh, Nell Gwynn. But I made sure, uh, by the way, I did it for nothing. Mm. did it for nothing. I'm hoping to catch a heart, you know. Mm. You hope to catch a heart or go and read about these things in the library. But it was a bit, uh, yeah, it was a bit nerve-wracking. But only, why? What were they going to do, eat me? Um, it was just in my head. Oh, and when I played Nell Gwynn, I'd go and talk to other people. I did meet uh, the League of Prostitutes chairman or president, one or the other, in London. She met with me. She looked like a librarian. And she sat with me, no leopard skin. And she sat with me and we talked together. She was remarkably bright. And so I've met, because of my work and work with rescued young children, uh, I have met uh, quite a number of people who've been linked with the uh, sex industry. And I've done that because you can't, you can't get a grip otherwise on, on what you need to be talking about. And equally, I speak to experts in other fields. Um, with Nell Gwynn, I sent my, I call it script, you know, I've told you this volume of writing, to a chap who got a double first at Oxford in, in Charles's mistresses, Charles II's mistresses. And he wrote things in the column like, where'd you get this from? Are you making this up? What's your source? <laughs> it's fine. He was, and then I was able to give them. And then you just think, well, that's a bit vague. He's right. I'll take that out. And, and so I make sure that I have an input from experts within the field. Mm. And that enables me to feel confident that I'm doing a decent job for people. I mean, the people in this castle of Tutbury here work very hard and with me a long time. Uh, they produce sort of lovely food and we sit down together and light fires and all these things. But we're having to fight for this place mm. because it is not Windsor and we're not on the circuit. So we have to work. And I also have a duty to them to make sure that people know that I'm trying to do my very best like they are too. And between us, we should produce something like a, a good thing. Mm. I think you do. I think you do. And I didn't realise that's how your portrayals began with, with Mary at Tutbury. So that's, yeah. that's really fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. Desperation. No roof. <laughs> you just have to do something a bit quick. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I played ghosts. I played all sorts of things over the years uh, as fun, but I'm not trained at all. Uh, I went to a convent and uh, some of the nuns thought there was going to be real trouble with me uh, so, reasonably. So I did do a London Academy course just for one term, which was for 18 year olds. And they took me at 14 because I was such a pest. So I did that and I never thought I'd use it, but I do. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? You don't know when these things are going to come right. You know, that's right. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for today because I've, I've known you for so long now and uh, I've never asked you actually about, you know, we've, we've talked about Mary, we've talked about the castle. We've ne I've never actually had a chance to ask you about your characters. So this has been really great. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. And I'd like to tell everybody listening uh, to this blog, what's happening uh, in this conversation, how, how take faith if you are passionate about period you love. Take heart that there are other people like Philippa and I who are out there and we're flying the flag as well. And there are some great things to do and we can fulfil lives with finding out new things. And Philippa does all of this as well. So I want to say... Good luck in what you're doing, history hunting, and uh, thank you.